This is abundant life right here. To worship God in this place. This is the place where we come and find hope. Where we find that God is great enough and is awesome enough to meet whatever need we have. To, that, that we might give our lives fully to him. Joyfully. And find abundant life as Jesus promised us. It's all about him. It's all about following God. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for calling us to this place. Thank you for your amazing love, which just pours out onto us for the power of your Holy Spirit, which can hit us and just wipe us out. We think of Ezekiel, who spent seven days just lying by the canal, wiped out because he was in the, had been in the presence of the living God. God, we come here today just hungering for you and already experiencing your presence. We love you, Lord. We give ourselves fully to you. Open our ears that we may hear what your word says to us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on the reading of this word and preaching from it that each one of us might be inspired to follow you, might know that you are enough. Oh God, may you have your will and your way, your reign, your rule, your kingdom come in this place at this time. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Friends, uh, open up your Bible. I, I, I hope you bring your Bible. I encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get one for you. Uh, we just uh, know this is the word of God. This is the, uh, the letter that, that God writes to us. This is life right here. It leads us to life that comes in, in, in Christ uh, through the Father, uh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, what more life is there than that? We're going to open up to uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. If you're not sure where that is, just look up 2 Kings in your index. You'll find it there. It'll point you in the right way. We're going to chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. And we'll read that. One day, Elisha, this is the prophet Elisha. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha 
had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. His father told a servant uh, to carry him to his mother. And after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, and then took her son and went out. Friends, this is God's word for the people of God today. Thank you, God, so much for your word. We pray that it will penetrate to the depths that we might sense what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name, we pray it. Amen. Well, earlier this summer, I had a chance to travel to Ohio uh, to uh, go to my family reunion. We have a family reunion there for just a, a day or two uh, every year. And um, we always get together and um, eat food and play games and reminisce about the people of the past that we've known and the people that uh, we, we haven't really known, people from far back. Sometimes we get to go to the old homestead over in Twinsburg and see the spring where we 
know the stories about the children that gathered there and, and all that was uh, going on in family life. Just all sorts of uh, stories about people from the past. And we, we know lots of stories. And, uh, and we know lots of stories, but there's lots of people. So there's, sometimes there's just a little snippet that we know about each person. So I want to show you, first of all, my great-grandfather, uh, uh, Floyd Scouten, the second from the left there. And this is him. Uh, he was an engineer. He worked for GM. And he's the guy that invented uh, the door lock on the side of your car. If you push your car lock down, remember this is a little, you know, now we just like click the button, right? But if you push it down and pull it up on those original GM cars, he's the one that invented that and sold that uh, or, or somehow uh, sold that to GM. And uh, we remember him with pride for that. Uh, that's a little snippet from our family history, from his life. Um, sadly, he, we also remember him for, for something else. He, he was an alcoholic, and he died of cirrhosis of the liver. And um, so he's remembered for, for both accomplishments and, and struggles that he had. Second picture I want to show you here is Grandma Allwine. Grandma Allwine was uh, a woman uh, who lived uh, during the Civil War. Her husband uh, went off to the Civil War to fight for the North and was uh, killed while he was there. I'll show you a second picture of her. This is, this is Grandma when she's younger, and this is Grandma when she's older. One of my kids said to me, I thought that was a man, that picture. <laughs> I love this picture of Grandma Allwine, though. She's like 92 years old or something here. And you know, what was so great about her, she was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. She loved the Lord. And she passed that on to her family. After the Civil War, the, uh, some of the um, soldiers from the South who uh, had, you know, the Confederacy had been disbanded, they would raid uh, southern Ohio. Uh, they would just ride around on horses and, like, raid uh, farms and, and homesteads and that type of thing. And when the raiders were coming, Grandma Allwine, the widow with her children, would take the cow and the children and they'd walk way back up in the, uh, the back pasture, and there was a secret cave back there, and they would hide in the cave. And uh, my cousin has been to that cave, taking pictures of that. I hope to go to that cave someday. But this is what we remember Grandma Allwine for, a woman of faith who lived through difficult times but shared her faith and, 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 uh, and raised her family uh, in that faith. A couple others that we remember, Chauncey Gardner. Chauncey, I don't have a picture of Chauncey. He was uh, kind of a playboy guy. He married one of my great-great-aunts, and uh, the only thing uh, that my relatives know about him is that he cheated on my aunt. <laughs> that's what we know about Chauncey. Maybe if your name is Chauncey, it's coming, right? I don't know. That's a, quite a name. I, I, it's uh, interesting. And then Uncle Doug, Doug Scouten. Once again, we don't have a picture of him. Uh, we don't really know too much about Uncle Doug, but this is the one thing we do know. Uncle Doug died in the outhouse. That's all we know. That is all we know about Uncle Doug. That's what we remember. And you know, it's kind of scary when you think about you might have lived your whole life and then you died in the outhouse and that's all they remember about you. You know, it is kind of scary. I, I, it makes me pause and wonder, what, what, will, what will they remember us for? Someday when people are sitting around our uh, uh, our relatives, years and years from now, what will they remember me for? What will they remember you for? 
What stories will they tell? I, I don't know about you, but my prayer for me, my hope, my deep hope is that they will remember that I lived my faith, that I loved Jesus more than anything else, and that I lived my faith, that I wasn't perfect. I know I messed up lots and, you know, I didn't do everything right, but that absolutely I lived my faith. That's my prayer for you too. I hope that that is what your, your uh, relatives far out will say about you. They were people of faith who lived it and passed it on to their families. The story of the Shunammite woman that we read today is a story of a woman that we know very little about. We just know a couple of these little episodes. And it's interesting how she's remembered. She's remembered as the woman who lived through this fascinating experience with Elisha and with her son. She's remembered as a person who lived her faith. And I want to look at this a little bit more closely. First of all, I just want to show you a picture of Shunem. This is a, a, a Shunem from the air. This is a, an aerial view now of it. It's a little village in northern Israel. It's near the Sea of Galilee. It's about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. It's actually right near Mount Gilboa, where uh, Jonathan and Saul made their last stand uh, and were uh, uh, um, killed by the Philistines on top of that mountain. It's Shunem is down in the valley, in the Jezreel Valley. It's actually relatively near the, the Valley of Armageddon. Uh, there's a Tel Megiddo is near there. This is a place where there was heavy traffic. People went through often because there were good roads that went through here. And Elisha, as he was the prophet to Israel, was working his way around the country. He would come through here. And this is where our story picks up. This well-to-do woman, the Shunammite, the woman from Shunem, she sees Elisha one day. And she welcomes him in for a meal. This is a traditional thing to do in the, in the ancient Near East, that they would welcome you and, and be incredibly hospitable. But she seems to do it over and over again. And uh, it becomes a practice. Elisha comes by and stops at her place for a meal. This is kind of uh, 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 close to our hearts in, in Kristen's family uh, because her dad was a, a bachelor pastor who uh, uh, had just moved to the new church up in Woodstock, New Hampshire. And uh, he w figured out that the Mellet family, uh, that Grandma Mellet was an amazing cook. I mean, she was so good. They had him over for a meal. And you know what? He just kept on showing up. <laughs> he was like, well, that was a good, really good meal. I'm just going to show. So he showed up again and again and again. And then he married Kristen's mom. That's how it works. <laughs> you know, the, that's the draw. Uh, beautiful woman and a really good meal. It drew the man in, right? That's uh, what happened with Kristen's dad. So this is what's happening with Elisha. He's coming by for the frequent meal. And uh, the woman says to her husband one day, you know, this is wonderful being generous in this way, but let's be more generous. What a great attitude. Let's be more generous. Let's build him a little room because this guy's on the road all the time. He's traveling through. Let's build him a room. And I love the details we get. It's on the top of the house. This is very normal. They had uh, uh, flat-topped uh, roofs. And it, it would be uh, a, a place where there's uh, more cool air flowing through. It would be a nice place up there. And so they build him a little room. And it says that it had a bed and it had a table and a chair and a lamp. And you might be thinking a nice little plug-in lamp. No, it wasn't that. A little oil lamp. But isn't it cool that we know? We know what was in the room that Elisha stayed at 
in the village of Shunem. What a neat thing. She was generous. I uh, remember my parents being generous to uh, students at Houghton College. My parents were professors at Houghton. And uh, when it came to be Thanksgiving, um, all these kids who were missionary kids or, or, or young people from uh, overseas, you know, they couldn't go home for um, uh, four days or five days. So they would uh, often stay at people's houses. And so I remember many times uh, people coming by and staying at my parents' house. Um, I remember a, a, a guy from India named Ajit who stayed with us. Or my, um, my good friend Brad, who was a missionary kid from uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. He stayed with us several times. Or the fascinating guy from South Africa named Pumlani. I just love his name, Pumlani. Isn't that great? And he was famous for saying, when do we get to go to Niagara's Falls? I, I love that. I will always remember that. We, we drive down the road and we're like, are we going to Niagara Falls? I mean, it, it, that's the Pumlani. Pumlani left us with that gift. And so, uh, so she's generous. And, and the first thing I want you to remember today is living your faith means being a generous person with what God has given you. Living your faith means being a generous person with what God has given you. There are so many ways to be generous. I see people in this church do this all the time. I see it when we have a special need and people give money. I see it when there are needs for, for servants to come and, and do uh, the, the, the good work of serving. Do you know that there are over 400 people in this church who regularly volunteer for something, whether it's bulletin folding or nursery workers or working on the landscaping outside, bringing people to doctor's appointments, bringing food when people are ill, playing in the band. It just goes on and on, greeting you out front today. Folks here have found their niche, and you heard Margie say it earlier, that, that there's nothing like being in that sweet spot where you just, you, you, you say, Lord, I love you, and I just want to serve. But I don't want to serve in some place where it's like a duty to serve. I want to serve in my sweet spot. And that's so powerful. Some people pray. They're prayer warriors. That's the sweet spot. What's your sweet spot? What's God given to you? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? We're going to start up a program that we've had in the past, uh, again soon, and that is helping people know what their spiritual gifts are so that they can know exactly where they can best serve. I hope you'll be involved in that. Well, as our story continues, one day Elisha says to his servant Gehazi, what can we do to bless this woman? Bring her by and we'll have a talk. Well, hey, what goes around comes around, doesn't it? She's been generous and now she's receiving. Elisha wants to be generous back to her. You know, you cannot outgive God. You cannot. As you give your life to the Lord, you receive so much more. I'm not necessarily talking about material blessings. Sometimes that happens, but far more important is the blessing of God himself being in your life and living that abundant life that Jesus promised. Elisha talks, interestingly, to the woman through Gehazi. She's standing right there, but he says to Gehazi, tell her, what can we do for her? You know, ask her, what can we do for you? Now, I don't know whether this is some sort of, uh, he's the holy man and, and, and there's like a little distance there. Or perhaps it's Gehazi who's a, sort of a prophet in training. This might be a training experience for him. Uh, uh, this is the word from God, and so you speak it. 
and have that opportunity. We don't know exactly why, but he asks her if she needs anything. And he says, perhaps we can speak to the king or the commander of the army. Maybe he's suggesting, oh, we might be able to get your husband out of some military duty. Or, or maybe just, there's just something that the king could do for you that, that uh, uh, we would know about if we knew your needs. And I love her contentment. She says, I, I have a home among my people. You know, if the, if, if the story stopped right here, how would we remember the Shunammite? We'd remember her as a generous person who was content. That, that would be a, a powerful, a powerful statement about who you are. But the story doesn't stop here. Gehazi notes that she doesn't have a son. And in this culture, this is a huge deal because not having a son means that your, uh, your property goes to, to the servant instead of to uh, the wife, and uh, who will take care of her in her old age. It is stated that her husband is older. Some people would have counted it as a curse on her to not have a son. And, um, and I just want you to know that if, if, you're, if you're in a situation where you're saying, God, why don't I have, and then you fill in the blank, whatever that is, if it's a godly thing, I want you to know it's not because God is cursing you that you don't have that. I don't know why you don't have that, but it's not because God is mad at you and wants to curse you. So often that type of thing has been spoken in the church. We don't know why some things don't happen for some folks and it does for others, but her contentment is powerful in the midst of that lack in her life. Well, they call her in again to talk and Elisha just feels free to declare to her, in one year's time, you're going to be standing here holding a son in your arms. Now, what if he was wrong? What a dangerous job the prophet of God has. Speaking that kind of promise into the life of a woman who has probably been praying and seeking for a child for years and years and years. He says that to her. But that's his job, to be sensitive to God and to, in a sense, in certain particular times, know what God is promising. And lo and behold, the text says, a year later she has become pregnant and given birth to a son. Well, she doesn't like it when, when he says that to her. When he says, you're going to have a son, her immediate reaction is, no, do not say this to me, man of God. Don't raise my hopes is there anything out there that, that God would love to give to you, but you're like, that's, that's so beyond, I, just don't even talk to me about it. I'm scared, I'm scared to even start to, to step in that direction because I, it, I, I would lay so much hope on that. And then if it were to not happen, and so we, we shut it off. But God is an extravagant God. God is an extravagant God. She has been generous. She's content. And yet God wants to bless her more. You know, if we honestly look around us, we can see how generous God is. Just look at nature. Green grass, thousands of different kinds of trees, beautiful animals, a hundred billion stars in our own galaxy and a hundred billion known galaxies in the known universe. Wow. Wow. God is extravagant 
enough clean water, building materials for making houses, plenty of food, materials for clothing. He's given us so much. God is a generous God. He's not a taker. He's not a God that is about, boy, I don't know if there's going to be enough resources. God is about abundance. We never have to fear whether he will provide. God will provide according to what his will is. And we do not need to fear at all. Do you lack something in your life? Do you have that genuine need that you're hoping for? Friends, God will take care of that. I encourage you to do what Jesus said. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and everyone who knocks the door is opened. He who clothes the flowers of the field so beautifully which are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he care for you? Friends, living your faith, another point here, living your faith means trusting God for all your needs. Living your faith means trusting God for all your needs. If you're going to be a person who is known for living your faith, be known as a person who lives without fear, who says, I'm tempted to be scared, but I've learned that God is trustworthy to meet all my needs. Maybe not all my wants, but all my needs. And when I'm experiencing a need not yet met, I'm living in faith that God will do what is best for me truly. If the story ended now, we'd say she was a, a person to be remembered as a person who lived her faith in generosity and was deeply, deeply blessed because of it a boy comes along into her family. But the story doesn't end here. The story continues. This little boy enters the family. He grows. He learns to talk, to walk. He eats his own meals. He runs and plays with his friends. He's a healthy kid. He's a healthy kid who loves his dad. His dad's out in the field, a farmer, wealthy enough to have servants. He goes out in the field to be with dad. He admires dad. I want to be with him when he's out there. But somehow, we don't know what happened here, whether it was a brain aneurysm or heat stroke or whatever. We don't know. But, but he begins to complain about his head hurting. My head, my head. And finally, it becomes urgent enough that his father says to the servant, take him, carry him home to his mother. Now, we don't know whether father was saying, you know, oh, man, this kid, this little kid out here, you know, suck it up. It's hot. All right, take him out. He's not, you know, handling it very well. Or, or whether the urgency of the boy caused the father to feel some urgency himself as well and say, all right, take him to his mom. We don't know the attitude there. But the servant picks him up. We know that he must be pretty young. He picks him up and he carries him to his mother and he sits on his mother's lap until noon. And then he dies. You know, some of you know this far better than I do, what it means to lose a child. The text just simply says he sat on his mother's lap and then he died. You know how intense that is. And her reaction is, is amazing. But before we get to that, I just want to say that in our everyday lives, even people of faith experience tragedy and hardship. Hardship. Hard times come to everyone. 
It's not a sign that you are out of favor with God. God is not punishing you. There's nothing you, can, you could have done differently sometimes when tragedy strikes. Sometimes just bad things happen. That's one of the messages that cle- comes clear in the Bible. There's, there's other messages in the Bible as well as to why tragedy happens or bad things happen. But one of the clear ones as well is it's not necessarily linked to your sin or, or punishment from God. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And in the midst of this terrible moment for this mother who's had her, her hopes fulfilled and now they're being crushed right in front of her. In the midst of this terrible moment, she responds with faith. It says she takes the boy and lays him on Elisha's bed. Not on his bed. Not on his parents' bed. On the bed that belongs to the man of God. Can you see in that act alone an act of faith? She carries him up the stairs and puts him there. Something's going on. She's saying, I've got to go see him. She still has some sort of hope. What kind of hope could she have? She must have deep faith. She shuts the door. She calls her husband's. She says, husband, she says, get me the servant who can get me the donkey. I'm going to go see the man of God. The husband's like, why? What are you doing? It's not a new moon or a Sabbath. These would be typical times when there would be a celebration or some time when the man of God would be around. She doesn't tell him that the son is dead. She doesn't tell her husband that her son is dead. Instead, she says, I need to go see the man of God right away. Maybe she's in shock. I don't know. But somehow in the midst of it, she's acting in faith. She has the servant take her right to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is 20 miles away from Shunem. Remember, the boy died at noon. If they hustled it, it would still be, boy, six, seven, eight hours. I mean, it's a ways. How does she know that Elisha's at Mount Carmel? We don't know. Maybe that was part of his pattern. Maybe she... He had passed through and she knew the direction he had gone. We don't know, but she knows somehow and they go the 20 miles and when they're still out on the plain coming towards Mount Carmel, Elisha and Gehazi see them coming. And Elisha says, "Go! it's the Shunammite. Go run out there. See what's, what's wrong. Ask her, are you okay? Is your husband okay? Is your child okay? And, and when Gehazi runs out and says that to her, she says, everything's fine. Now, was she lying? No. She was just focused. She wasn't going to even deal with Gehazi. She wasn't going to deal with anyone. She was headed right towards Elisha. She was headed right towards the one thing she knew she could count on, and that would be the man of God ready to respond to the need that she has. She doesn't look for alternate ways to drown her sorrow. She doesn't give up. She keeps on trying. She goes all the way the 20 miles to Elisha. And there she completely throws herself at his feet. She has no shame. She has nothing uh, holding her back. She just lays it out and says, God, I need your help. She, Elisha, help me. Isn't it 
an amazing place to be. Not a wonderful, amazing place, but, but a powerful, amazing place to be when you are so desperate, you just have no shame. You lay it out before God. Friends, I've been in those places. I've found God to be faithful. Faithful when I said, God, I've got nothing left. I need your help because I cannot do this on my own. No amount of manipulation or, or better practices or anything like that is going to work this out. God, please help me. And friends, over and over again in my life, I found God to be faithful in that place. The Lord uh, hasn't revealed it to Elisha. He says, I don't know what's going on, but obviously she's significantly distressed. Let's listen to her. You know, isn't it interesting? Elisha's the answer guy, isn't he? Isn't he the guy who knows everything? No, Elisha is just a human being who's trusting God and, and acting on faith as well. And he says, we better listen. And boy, the Shunammite is brutally honest. Here's the words she says. Did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you not to raise my hopes? She said that to him 10 years ago. She's still carrying that. She's still saying, boy, God has blessed me so much, but whoa, what if he takes it away? Are you scared God will take something away? Is there something that you want to hold on to that you say, God, I'll give you my whole life, but I, I, I just, I, I want to hold on to this. I want to tell you that it's like trying to hold on to water. If you do that, grab it all you want. There'll be nothing in your hand. But if you give your life to God, you'll have all that you need. She says, didn't I tell you not to raise my hopes She's saying, this hurts more than not having a son at all. When it all falls apart in our lives, when we lose a loved one, when we lose a cherished dream, when we lose a home or a fortune or something precious, friends, put your focus on nothing else. Living your faith means going directly to God and pouring out your honest needs and feelings to him. Go directly to the Lord and be completely honest. Don't fear that you'll hurt his feelings. Just tell him, I, you, ah. That's okay. God understands that kind of language right there. He does. He does. I want it and it seems like it's gone. She says, I'm not leaving you. He says, Gehazi, go take this staff and lay it on the boy's face. And she sticks with Elisha and they start heading back. Gehazi makes the journey of 20 miles. He lays the staff on the boy's face. Now we might say, what? Is this like a magic stick or something? But you know, over and over in the, in the Old Testament, we see that God uses tangible objects in strange ways. We even see it in the New Testament with handkerchiefs that people touch that, that Peter has, has touched, has, has blessed. It's strange. Sometimes God uses tangible things. We might wonder, why would God do that? And I, I don't always know, but 
all I can say is that in this case, it was expected, possibly it will make a difference, but in reality, it doesn't. And so Gehazi goes, he lays his staff on the boy's face, nothing happens, and he runs back to Elisha and he says, nothing's happening. While Elisha and the Shunammite are coming along, and Elisha gets to the house. Now, it's got to be the middle of the night. If they made the first 20 miles in, in eight hours, and if luckily they made the second 20 miles in eight hours, and they started at noon, we're all the way to four in the morning. These people are tired. They're working through it. But Elisha gets there, and he, he steps out in faith. He goes into that room. You know, if I had gotten there and I saw a dead boy, I would have said, I am so sorry. I will cry with you. I will weep with you. But I, I wouldn't expect to go in and say, maybe he'll come back to life. Perhaps my faith is not strong enough. But Elisha walks into that room, and then he does this, this such a strange thing. It says he lays himself out on the body of the boy. It says mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. What? Why would that be? I, d I don't exactly know what's going on here, but, but I will say this. Sometimes acting in faith means taking a tangible step, not just a, a mental step. Okay, well, you know, maybe we should do something, but like stepping out and doing something. And Elisha steps out and he lays himself over this boy. And he, I think this, this shows to us that, that God's material creation being able to touch things and feel things, that type of thing. His material creation is as valuable to him as the spiritual realm. Elisha lays himself out on the body. We offer to you the opportunity to come forward and have hands laid on you. Yes, we can pray for you right here. Your friends can pray for you, but there's power. There is power in laying hands on someone and finding that God works in that way too in special ways. I don't know what that all means, but I know that the material is important. Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised into his old body, but it was now a glorified body. But he was still recognizable. Friends, you are going to live for eternity in a body that is recognizable as you. Now here's the good news, especially for some of us, it's going to be a glorified body. <laughs> it ain't the same one. It's going to be perfected, but it's going to be tangible, physical. They could put their fingers in Jesus' nail prints. He ate fish. The, the, the material of life is as important as, as the spiritual in that sense. And friends, is anything impossible for God? He lays himself out on the boy in this special way. And the boy's body grows warm. Then he stands up and paces back and forth and prays. And then he lays himself out again. And the boy sneezes seven times. And wakes up. The boy is raised from the dead. What are you scared about in your life right now? What do you think is impossible? What are you worried that won't happen? God raises people from the dead. That's awesome. Praise God for that. And, and can, you sense, can you sense that Elisha is, is a forerunner of Jesus? He raises 
a young boy from the dead in, in the power of God. Later in the chapter, he feeds 100 people with 20 loaves of bread. Hey, Jesus is going to outdo him there, you know, 5,000 with five. But hey, it's a precursor. It's a precursor. God is powerful. What will you be remembered for? At this point, the Shunammite is remembered as a woman who was generous, who was greatly blessed, who went through tragedy and then was greatly blessed again. What will you be remembered for? I hope that, like her, you will be remembered for a person who lives their faith in the everyday life, lives that, that you have and the stuff that comes along. Because, friends, nothing is impossible for God. And we can trust him fully and totally. Let's pray together. God, our good news is that Jesus has come, conquered death, and nothing is impossible. And we see just the Old Testament precursor to that in this story today. Encourage us now to choose to live our faith not just to talk about it, but to live it and to allow you in the everyday actions of our lives to shine and be seen by others as the God for whom nothing is impossible. May everything about us point people to the hope and the good news of Jesus and that God is on our side. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.